Welcome to Looking Deeper, the podcast for the preaching ministry of Berean Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My name is Marcus Little, and I'm the senior pastor of that congregation. We are of the conviction that the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God are enough to bring about the purposes of God for our lives and for the world. Because of that, we view preaching not as a one-way activity, but as a conversation. Please feel free to join us in that conversation by emailing me at marcus at bereangr.org or through our Facebook page, or better yet, by visiting us in person sometime for our Sunday services. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the corner of Coit and Sweet in Northeast Grand Rapids. For now, I trust that God's Spirit will speak to God's people through this part of God's Word. About 20 years ago, the movie Ocean's Eleven made a hit, a major hit, out of what had been just a minor hit in Elvis Presley's repertoire, a song called A Little Less Conversation. The chorus goes, a little less conversation, a little more action, please. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. It was a major hit, it was remixed, and the lyrics have stayed with me. I bought the Elvis 30 CD, and this was the bonus track added at the last minute to make it around 31 hits because of its success in the movie. And it wasn't one that I had heard before growing up on classic rock and oldies stations. This wasn't one that I had heard, but it was really catchy. And as I thought about our passage this week, that lyric came to mind. It captures in some ways what lies at the heart of the story that we're going to be looking at, this reality that oftentimes we are all talk and no walk. The phrase that Jesus uses in this story, and it's a familiar story, maybe one of the most familiar scenes from Jesus' life, the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the phrase that Jesus uses is, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Spirit and flesh. And we see this as people familiar with the New Testament all throughout the scriptures, this distinction between spirit and flesh. And Jesus brings it to bear on the disciples in this scene that we're going to be looking at. And I want to suggest that what Jesus is describing is not necessarily like this essential distinction in human beings between our physical bodies and our spirits. I think given the context in this instance, what Jesus is saying, especially to Peter, is you're all talk. But then when it comes down to it, you don't show up. And we see this reality played out in our lives over and over again to the point that when we see the alternative, when we see that someone's talk matches their walk, we're taken aback. And I was thinking about this this week as we've seen President Zelensky in Ukraine match his words. The man is channeling some serious Winston Churchill vibes, and I cannot help but be inspired. I don't need a ride, I need ammo. I mean, that, I wanted to put that on a t-shirt and found it. It's already on t-shirts. I'm going to get myself one. The man is staying in the capital city knowing he's a target of assassination attempts. He is living up to the hype. And we pay attention to that because it is so often not the case. We are familiar with people who talk a good game and then fail to show up when it counts. And if we're honest, if we were honest in that moment of confession that we had earlier in the service, we know that that's us more often than not. That's me. That's me that routinely says, all right, this week I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to go to the gym three times. I'm going to do these exercises, and then that just doesn't happen. 
It's me who, as I have confessed publicly to this congregation prior, that I am a half-hearted convert to the religion of dental hygiene and generally in dentistry. So I went in for my checkup and I told him, I talked a good game. Yeah, flossing and brushing twice a day. Gonna do that, gonna do that thing. I do it once a day. Do it once a day, not twice a day. Just can't be bothered. All talk, no walk. And as a congregation, I want to suggest to you that that can be true of us. Two years into a pandemic where we were forced to step back from so many things, we heard, we've got to get back to doing things. We've got to get back to doing things. And as we have started to get back to doing things, a lot of people are not getting back to doing things, and it's making it hard to do things. The ministry information counter bears witness to that fact. Sign-up sheets that sit blank. What I want to focus on this morning in that aspect for us as a congregation, I'm going to call us to something specific, is something that was true prior to the pandemic, which is that we talk a good game about being a people of prayer, but every time we put together a space for prayer, it is the least engaged space. And that is what Jesus is calling attention to specifically in this passage when he says to Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So you're getting the application on the front end of the message this morning. Prayer is vital for our spiritual lives. And it is easy to be all talk and no walk when it comes to that. So we're going to dive into this passage. We're going to be looking at Mark 14, verses 32 to 42. I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll spend some time considering what it has to say to us. Mark 14, 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy And they did not know how to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This scene is well known to us. A lot of time has been spent 
mining this scene for truths about Jesus and his work and his personhood and his identity and what it means for us. And it is easy to see in this scene a theme of guilt. And right at the beginning, even as I called out some of those dynamics of being all talk and no walk, I want to guard against guilt being the primary outcome. I want to do that by calling attention to what this passage is narrating, which is Jesus' hour. This is Jesus' hour to accomplish what God has sent Jesus to do. The hour has come, he says. And he says to his father in prayer that the hour has arrived and it might pass from him. He wants the hour to pass. And Jesus takes some steps in this moment. They go to Gethsemane. And it's possible we typically picture them in like a grove, but it's late at night, it's early spring, and there is a spot in Gethsemane that is actually kind of a cavern, a cave in which some of the olive pressing would have taken place. And a lot of scholars believe that that's actually where Jesus goes. It makes sense of some of the things that take place where Jesus goes a little further, a little further into this cavern, leaving eight of the disciples. Judas has already left the group, kind of at the entrance of the cavern. And he takes Peter, James, and John with him further in, and then he himself goes even further. Later we read that one of the companions was only in a linen undergarment, sleeping on his cloak, which would not have been possible or advisable if they were truly outdoors. But if they're in a cavern, it makes a little more sense. But Jesus is withdrawing. He's got his 11 disciples with him, but he asks these three to join him in proximity as he prays. And Jesus is described here as being distressed, greatly distressed and troubled. And he says to these three, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Oftentimes we come to this passage and we try to explain, well, most of what we're seeing here is Jesus in his humanity. Because what we see of this struggle, it's hard to imagine that it's true of God. God wouldn't struggle in this way. This must be Jesus the human, not Jesus, Son of God. And I would simply suggest that the Gospels don't make space for us to make those kinds of distinctions. There's just Jesus, fully God and fully human. And Jesus the God-man, Jesus, God in flesh, is struggling to the point of saying, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, and saying to his three closest friends, remain here and watch. This is Jesus asking his friends to stay with him in his hour of deepest need. And who among us cannot relate or appreciate or understand moments like that when you just need your friends to be with you? And these are the three. These are the three whom Jesus on other occasions has brought along with him. When he raised the little girl from the dead, these are the three that witnessed that. These are the three that joined Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw his glory fully revealed and heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
It's also, in Mark's gospel, unique in the chapter before this, Mark 13, when Jesus talks about the events of the end times, Mark is explicit in saying that he told that to these three, not to the crowd of disciples generally or to the crowds. These three heard what Jesus said. And so these three enjoy a privileged place, and now they are being invited Remember last week we talked about privilege. They're being given the privilege of being close to Jesus in his hour. The other eight are not extended that invitation. And so they're being invited in. And so Jesus goes and he prays. He pours out his heart to his God. And then he comes back and he finds them sleeping. And it's important that we keep the friendship the relationship in view, because guilt isn't a function in friendships. These are friends who have failed their friend. Guilt is not the emotion. Guilt involves breaking a rule. Friendships aren't built on rules. If you're in a friendship that is built on rules, it's not a friendship. Friendship is built on mutual trust and loyalty, and the emotion that should accompany the failure of a friend is not guilt, But embarrassment, disappointment, I can't believe I failed my friend. It's what I call a cringy sort of reaction. I had an instance of this. I rented a room from a good friend of mine for a while when I was in college. And one month, I did not have the funds. My check would have bounced. And I had to go to my friend and say, can, can I have my rent check back? I'll make it up later. It was an incredibly cringy moment. I couldn't believe that I was failing my friend who had been gracious enough to let me rent a room from him and he graciously gave me the check back and said, you know most landlords would not do this. I said, I know, I know. I'm so embarrassed that I failed my friend. That's the dynamic here. This isn't Jesus coming back and berating the disciples for breaking a rule. This is Jesus coming to his friends, disappointed. And when the disciples are approached the second time, it's significant that they say, that it says they didn't know how to answer him. They didn't have anything to say. They're not flippantly disregarding Jesus' request. They're letting their friend down and they know it. Jesus is genuinely surprised and disappointed by this. Jesus, the friend, comes and says, I can't believe this. And, and with good cause. There's, there's a lot to understand about what's going on. It is late at night after all. And they have been at this lavish feast. Some wine was consumed as part of the Passover meal. All of that makes sense. But at the same time, as I thought about this this week, this is the same group of people who told Jesus on another occasion, after fishing all night, that we've been fishing all night, and yet Jesus says, I want you to go out this morning and do it again. And they did. These are guys that know how to stay up all night and still be able to have energy to do stuff. So the, our eyelids were really heavy, sort of falls flat. It's appropriate for Jesus to be disappointed. We've also said that we're looking at each of these panels, each of these scenes in Jesus' passion through the lens of those that are with Jesus. And last week we looked at the one sterling example of what it means to be a companion of Jesus, the woman who came and anointed him. And each week we're going to refer back to her because there's not a lot of encouraging examples as we go further in. 
starting with the disciples in Gethsemane. And what struck me about the woman in this instance is the woman could not be kept away from Jesus, even though there were barriers. She didn't belong in that setting, and there were people who were rebuking her for entering in and doing what she did. She could not be kept away from Jesus in his hour. The disciples, as they were invited to be close to Jesus in his hour, squandered the privilege that they were being given. So here's a a thought exercise that we don't often do with Scripture, but I find is immensely profitable. I want to ask the question, what if? Because it's easy to look at this and say that the disciples failed Jesus in some way that was vital to what Jesus was doing. It gets to the question of what was it that Jesus needed? Why did Jesus ask these three to join with him? And this again goes back to if Jesus is God in the flesh, surely he doesn't need anyone's help to accomplish what God has set for him to do. So I want to just explore this. What if this story turned out differently? When we were in the prayer space this morning reflecting on this passage, I I raised this question. I read this passage, I read this story, and every time I read it, I want it to turn out differently. I don't know if you've ever had that experience with a Bible story, it's particularly true of this. I just, I really want it to turn out. I want Jesus to come back that first time and find them having the most incredibly vibrant prayer meeting ever in the history of humanity and not sleeping. They always are sleeping. It never, the the story never goes differently. So we're going to imagine that it went differently. What if they had stayed awake? What if they had prayed while Jesus prayed? What if in the scene that follows then, as they have seen Jesus' fortitude and experienced it themselves in prayer, when that mob comes to arrest Jesus, instead of first fighting and trying to stop the arrest, they simply stayed with Jesus. So that when their act of violence goes awry and it's clear Jesus doesn't mean to fight, they didn't flee but stayed with him. You see, everything about the disciples is trying to stop the crucifixion from happening. They're not ready for it. What if instead, in observing Jesus' prayer and dedication and fortitude, they don't try to stop it and they're not scared of it and they stay with Jesus? What if they were with Jesus when he stood trial and he wasn't alone? What I want to suggest is that if the disciples are faithful, it does not change the outcome of this story. In other words, Jesus did not lose something because the disciples failed. The disciples are the ones who lost something. They missed out on something by falling asleep. Jesus goes to the cross and must go to the cross. That is Jesus' path. And Jesus is not asking his disciples to stay with him in order to change the outcome. Jesus is asking his disciples to stay with him because it will help him face his hour, but more than that, I believe, it is for their benefit to stay with Jesus. It is not that Jesus needs their help. Jesus' faithfulness shines through throughout the rest of the story. But the disciples miss something, I think, and so as we ask the question, now what? What are we to make of this? I want to Explore that. What did the disciples miss? What did the disciples miss? And I think 
the suggestion of what they missed comes with the instruction that Jesus gives to them and the instruction that he gave to these same three six times in, Ma- in Mark 13 in that sermon that he gives to them about the times of the end. Over and over again, he says to them, watch. In fact, it's the last thing that he says to them in that sermon, watch so that you may not stumble. And now they come to the garden and he says to them, watch. Remain here and watch. What were they to watch? I think there's a literal sense in this. It's not guard me against the mob that's coming. It's watch. I'm going to pray. You need to watch me pray. I'd never noticed that before. That what Jesus is asking them to do is not to pray with him necessarily as much as to watch him pray. And as I looked at this text, I thought to myself, well, this is interesting. Jesus asked them to watch for an hour. And if you noticed, it did not take me an hour to read the passage. Jesus' prayer, the first time, is just in verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. We're told Jesus prayed for an hour. And here's what I imagine happened. Jesus says, watch while I pray. He goes over and starts praying. And here's what the disciples heard. Abba, Father, all things are possible. Compare that to John 17. Jesus' prayer for unity among the disciples. They were awake for that one. John didn't miss that prayer. Wrote it all down. Imagine, imagine what they would have heard over the course of that hour. And then I think Mark, Mark has a subtly comic aspect to his writing. Verse 39, after they've been rebuked and again told to watch and pray, again he went went away and prayed saying the same words. Mark doesn't even quote Jesus' prayer, I think because as far as the disciples are aware, he must have prayed the same words because they didn't hear any of them. That's how unalert they were. We only get this one snippet of the prayer. What would they have seen? What would they have heard? The snippet that we get is instructive. It lets us in on Jesus' prayer life with his Father. And as the Son of Man, as the perfect human, His prayer is instructive for us. He prays honestly and intimately. He addresses God as Father, something that is not common in Jewish thinking. And yet, for us, two times in the New Testament, we are told that we have the same form of address, to call God our parent, to come as intimates, not as subjects, not as servants, but as we've been hearing about, as friends as people with intimate relationship. And so Jesus is honest with God. You can do this. You can remove this hour from me. You can cause it to pass, and I'd like you to do it. He's passionate. He doesn't hold back his emotions. My soul is deeply troubled and sorrowful to the point of death. The template for this is the Psalms. Jesus' prayer echoes the prayers of the psalmists. K.J. Ramsey says this about the Psalms. 
the ones that inform how Jesus prayers. He says, others might not be comfortable with our most honest, desperate cries, but the Psalms make it exceedingly clear God is. This is the prayer book of God's people, written in the language of desire that situates our pain next to praise, not hiding pain underneath praise, not whispering about it. The Psalms display God's people attuned to their pain and willing to express it in striking vulnerability, defeating our tendency to try to be holy without being human first. And we see that nowhere more clearly than in the person of Jesus, who was not holy before being human first. This should be great encouragement to us because the disciples fail to watch and that does let Jesus down. He is alone in his prayer. But what we glean from Jesus' prayer is a way for us to pray that it is okay for us to say to God, our circumstances are not acceptable. We would like you to change them. And when Jesus says, yet not what I will, but what you will, this is not Jesus giving in to fatalism. This is not Jesus saying, but whatever will be, will be. That's not the sense at all. Because whatever will be runs contrary to how God would have the world to work. God would not have the world to work in such a way that perfectly righteous people are brutally tortured and murdered by the people in control. That is not how God has set up the world to work. When we face circumstances, whether it is illness or injustice or poverty or simple unfairness between siblings, we can pray with confidence, God, I know you don't approve of this and I'd like it to change. Jesus' prayer about God's will is not about his circumstances, it is about his obedience. When we say, not, your, not my will but your will, we are saying, I want to obey you. I want to be faithful. But it is not just a surrender to circumstances, whatever they be, imagining that God wants suffering and pain to be part of our lives. This is what the psalmists teach us, to complain to God about our suffering and not imagine that we're going to be corrected. Hey, don't complain. That's not appropriate. In fact, I grew up with a statement, those who complain and blame dishonor God's name. The Psalms would beg to differ. Those who complain to God honor God's name because God delights to hear our complaints and Jesus is complaining. And he is not corrected for complaining, he is instead given the faithfulness to obey what God has for him. That's what the disciples would have seen. His prayer is for faithfulness and he is answered. We know this because of how Hebrews describes this moment in Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. This is describing this scene in Gethsemane. To the one who was able to save him from death. It's what Jesus says, you could save me from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Complaint and reverence go together. They are not opposites. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus prays for faithfulness. He prays for the strength to obey, and it is granted. He is heard. And of course, he is ultimately saved from death, not by avoiding it, but by overwhelming it in resurrected life. 
Jesus was alone as he prayed. But Romans 8, and I'm going to spend some time on the podcast this week in that passage, Romans 8 tells us the same thing. We are not alone when we pray. I think one of the reasons that it is difficult for us sometimes to pray is it feels pointless. It feels lonely. And we need to remember a few things. First of all, that Jesus is always and forever interceding for us. Jesus will not do what the disciples did to him. Jesus will never fail to be present with us in our prayers. Jesus watches while we pray and prays in agreement with us. And if that wasn't enough, so does the Spirit. So that Paul can say, even when we don't know how to pray, when we find ourselves in the place of the disciples and we don't have an answer, we don't have the words, and I have felt that over the last year or so. I don't have words for prayer. Most of my prayers are simply at this stage, Lord have mercy. And the Spirit has to fill in the rest. And the Spirit fills in the rest with groans too deep for words. We are not alone when we pray. But more than that, the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 and John's vision of heaven in Revelation 6 tell us that we are part of the invisible communion of saints. It would be silly for us to imagine that when followers of Jesus leave this world in death and arrive in heaven, that somehow they stop praying. The scene in Revelation 6 is the souls of those who have been martyred crying out the prayer of the Psalms. How long, O Lord? And so the author of Hebrews says that we have been brought into that assembly of the souls of the righteous made perfect. That's where we are when we pray. But if you're like me, we need to be challenged in our imaginations to know that that's true, that when we go to prayer, we are not alone. But I think this is where we often fail to take advantage of what is right around us, which is one another. We underestimate the significance of simply being present with one another in prayer. And I know the, I know the, the dynamic, right? The church advertises a prayer meeting Wednesday at 7 or Sundays at 9.30, really hard on Daylight Savings Time Day, I know. And we imagine, okay, I'm going to go in, I'm going to sit, and there might only be five or six people because we know how prayer meetings go. And we get there, we imagine that we're going to get there, and it's going to be awkwardly silent. And then I'm going to have to say things out loud to God in front of other people, and I'm not comfortable doing that. I totally get it. And it's totally okay. Never underestimate the power of simply being present and agreeing with the ones who are praying. And never underestimate how valuable silence is. Jesus doesn't say to them, pray for me, pray with me. He says, watch while I pray. Just be with me. I don't need you to say anything. And we've all been in those situations, right? As friends, we're in a dire situation and you've got the friends that show up and they fill the air with words and it's like, it's just that's not helpful right now. I need you to be here. I need you to talk less. That's a challenge for me, to show up and say less. 
But Jesus does, and this is our application, this is what I think we need to lean into. Jesus does tell them to pray, and he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He doesn't need them to pray for him. He says, pray so that you will not fall, so that you will not stumble. And of course, they fail to pray for that, and so they fail to be given the gift of faithfulness that Jesus receives as answers to his prayer. They could have endured. They could have stayed with Jesus if they had prayed. If they had asked God, in this hour, make us faithful. Not because it will change the outcome, not because it will change the circumstances, but because it will allow us to remain with Jesus. Think about how differently their story would have gone. The woman couldn't be kept away from Jesus in his hour. The disciples squandered the privilege. This is what we need to lean into, to see prayer as a vital aspect of relating to Jesus, of being with Jesus and drawing strength to endure regardless of what is going on. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he emptied himself that he endured this hour and was found faithful. And we acknowledge that the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And so we ask right now for faithfulness. We ask that you would strengthen our hearts, that we would know that we are not alone in prayer, that we would be bold to bring all of the things that trouble us fully before your throne, confident that your desire is for our best, and that we would not miss out on the privilege of being with Jesus at any moment of our lives, and that we would be present with one another to give tangible evidence that we are not alone, but that as the body of Christ, indwelled by the Spirit, that we are one with one another. So we ask that your Spirit would make us faithful, and we ask it all because of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. I pray you were blessed by what you heard. We hope you'll join us again next week, whether on this podcast, via our live stream, or in person. Until then, watch for our bonus episodes with reflections on this message and a preview of next week's message that dropped throughout the week. Until then, may the God who loves us beyond our ability to think or imagine bless you, keep you, be gracious to you, look upon you with favor.